0: if you would, turn with me in your Bibles. We're actually going to be, uh, we're we're working our way through the book of Matthew. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been up here, so let me just refresh your your memory of where we're at. We're actually in Matthew chapter 10. We're working our way through verses 2 and 4. We're looking at the 12 apostles. Um, As we're looking at these apostles, we're looking at verses that are, you know, from critical moments in their life. And so even though we're working through the Gospel of Matthew, we're actually going to be spending time this morning in the Gospel of John. And so, if you would, please, actually, you want to turn in your Bible to Matthew, uh, sorry, to John chapter 1, and uh, verses 35 to 42. We're going to look at three different passages this morning from, from the Gospel of John pertaining to Andrew. Krista, um, I'm pretty sure the slide is still in there. Uh, there's a, I, I drew up a slide a couple of weeks ago with the 12 apostles, the, the, the lists where they were mentioned. I'm not sure if it's still in there or not. We updated Proclaim. That's why the text on that very first song was kind of goofy this morning. So we need to go back in and fix that. Before we jump into this, before I, I read to you from Matthew chapter 10, uh, I, I just want to refresh your memory of where we're at. We're talking about Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. He said, you know, pray to the Lord. He said at the tail end of chapter 9, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out his laborers into the harvest. And then uh, he's got his disciples, and he's asking them to pray that God would send them out. And this is the list that then comes in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. There's 12 apostles, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon Canaanias. And we worked our way through those names briefly a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we notice uh, right off the bat as we look at this that there's a A rough grouping here, it's not rough, it's pretty precise, there's three groups of four. The leader of each group is always mentioned at the top, and then within that group, the other names that follow aren't necessarily in any particular order. So there wasn't an exact hierarchy or an exact ranking of 1 to 12, it was three distinct groups of four apostles, and those four were mentioned in any kind of rough order, but they always put the leader of the group at the front of the group and so for group number one simon peter he is the undisputed leader of that first group and he is the undisputed leader of the whole set of 12 he is the spokesman whenever there's any kind of a a word to be spoken or any kind of a message that needs preaching uh, peter's your guy he's the one that stands up peter has a brother his brother's name is andrew and andrew would be the opposite of peter I mean, they're brothers, they're related, but whereas Peter is uh, very bombastic, very out front speaking, he's the one that has the the sermon to preach, he's the one that has the burning message in his soul. Whenever there's a moment to preach, Peter's up front preaching. Andrew is not that guy. Andrew's the quiet guy that uh, just sort of hangs back behind the scenes. He's the in the shadows kind of fellow. And uh, there is absolutely, beyond all doubt, a a time and a place and a need for the Lord to have those men in His work. So, uh, you're in John. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, just the lists of these 12 apostles. We'll pray, and then we will we will get to work. So, Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, Protas, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we know that your plan is incredibly complex and it's your plan. And as your thoughts are higher than your thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways, Lord, we we seem to think we've got it all figured out when it comes to choosing leaders that we know exactly who it is that we want to lead us. But Lord, you choose men of all different types of personalities and skill sets and Lord, you use these people to accomplish your purposes. Father, as we consider these 12, I pray that you just remind us that we are not the one in charge. That you are. That you are appointing individuals to serve in unique roles and in special circumstances to accomplish miraculous things. Father, help us to understand that and help us, Lord, as we look at Andrew today to understand for those of us in this room who might be an Andrew, that we would find our place in your plan. Father, show us beautiful things from your word. As you chose Andrew, Lord, I pray you would choose some of us in here today who are Andrews to do those small but important tasks that advance the kingdom. We love you, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for those of you who know me, uh, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to uh, languages. Um, And I wasn't this way in high school. I was actually not very studious at all in high school. If you had told me as a grade 12 student in high school that there would come a day in which I would get excited about prepositions and adverbs and compound coordinate conjunctions, I I would have laughed and said, what is that? Um, I've brought a couple of books with you, with me this morning to show to you from my library that I treasure highly, uh, above the commentaries, in case you were wondering, um, that I use every single day. Just to show you a few of these, I've got them here. First one up is uh, Greek Grammar, Beyond the Basics by Dr. Wallace. It's a good one. I like it. Makes me happy. Um, I've also got in here, oh man, I showed these way up in here, didn't I? This is a little bit of an older one. It's a good one, though. It's a classic. This is um, a, manual of grammar, a manual grammar of the Greek New Testament by Dana and Manti. I refer to it as Dana Manti. That's just my name for it. Uh, this is also a good one. It's a classic. It's not as modern as that one, but this is still some good classical, good, solid research. I, I use it all the time when as I'm picking apart the Greek New Testament. I got this book just this year, and I, I really have come to really love this book. Prepositions. This whole book is on nothing but Greek prepositions in the Koine Greek New Testament. Uh, The title of it is Prepositions and Theology. You may not be aware of this, but all of Ephesians chapter 1 is one ginormous, long run-on sentence. When you read Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles, you're going to notice periods and sentences and complete thoughts. But the truth is, when Paul was writing Ephesians chapter 1, he was just so carried away, he just long run-on sentence. How does he do that? Well, prepositions. Prepositions, my friend. That's how he does it. So I, uh, I am into Greek. I love these things. I, I love looking at the Greek language. I really find that the Bible, when you understand it in its original language, helps make so much more sense of the commentaries. And so, these books are, are really, really valuable in that regard. What's interesting is all three of these books, though they deal with slightly different components of Greek grammar and slightly different issues, they all have one amazing thing in common. I guess they have two amazing things in common. One, they're all dealing with the Scriptures. That's number one. The number two most amazing thing that they all have in common is that all of them, all three of these books, are indebted, heavily indebted, I would say, to a fourth book that I use very often as well. Dr. A.T. Robertson. See this thing? It's a phone book. The title is A Grammar of the Greek New Testament in the Light of Historical Research. He doesn't only look at all of the 23,000 fragments of scripture of the new testament that we have he also does comparative analysis with greek texts that we have from that era uh, that were in circulation and and he pulls all of this data together to come up with what we know as the authoritative definitive this is the bible on the bible on the new testament so to speak this is a full understanding of greek language now this guy is my hero he is he's a grammarian He's a nerd. He gets into things like verbs and adjectives and stuff like that. I love this guy, and I I turn to him quite regularly when I'm stumped on a particular problem or I'm trying to figure something out, and he has helped me out a lot. And I should say he's helped you out a lot as well, Um, although I don't always give him the credit that is his due. Dr. Robertson lived in the early part of the 20th century. He taught at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He was getting to be quite popular, quite famous for his preaching. In fact, he was getting calls and invitations from all over the southern United States to preach and to speak at conferences and to come and address conventions and different gatherings of Baptists. At the time, there was a man there who was the president of Southern. His name was E.Y. Mullins. Dr. Mullins was the president of the seminary. He was, in terms of the seminary, he was the top dog. Dr. Mullins was a little bit jealous of Dr. Robertson's the fame that he was getting and the way that people were turning to him for leadership and asking him to explain the scriptures. So Dr. Mullins, in 1911, issued a policy directive, a memo towards all the staff, in which he said, you will not be permitted to speak at different conferences or different conventions. You will not be permitted to have any leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention at all. Your role is here at the seminary. You will teach students. I will be the one to go and speak at conventions on behalf of the seminary, not you. That's a rough paraphrase, but that's pretty close to what he said. Now, there are a number of notable scholars at the time that uh, sort of chafed at, uh, at this decree. In fact, the history books show that four rather prominent faculty left as a result. We're not going to stand for that. We want to go. We want to preach. That's God's calling on our life. Dr. Robertson did not leave. He stayed at Southern he stuck it out, and he became Dr. Mullins' closest friend and confidant, his counselor. He willingly submitted to the policy that Mullins put upon him. He forsook preaching engagements. He forsook going out and being involved in other leadership positions in the convention. And he stayed behind, and he stuck it out with Dr. Mullins, and he advised him. Now, what's interesting, to this very day, you can go to my library bookshelf and you can go to any other pastor's library bookshelf you'll find commentaries you'll find theological books dr mullins wrote several theological books as well but every book you find whether it be a commentary on some passage of scripture whether it be a a text dealing with the linguistic aspects of the greek new testament you'll find dr mullins is almost never referenced And you'll find in most pastors' libraries, they won't have any of Dr. Mullins' books on their shelves. But everybody, to this day, is still listening to Dr. Robertson. Rather than competing with Dr. Mullins for the limelight, he understood, and his journals reflect this, that there was a need for a man to work in the shadows. That there was a need for a man to stay back, to, give off, to offer counsel and advice, and to assist. And he did. And what's interesting is looking back a hundred years later, the man who is most honored to this day in God's providence, the man whom God has given more honor to this day, Is Dr. Robertson, not Dr. Mullins. In the book of James, don't flip there, just listen. James makes the statement Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't be false. Don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits. It is impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Dr. Robertson exemplified that, and as we look at these 12 apostles, I think Andrew, Peter's brother, exemplifies that. We don't really know much about Andrew, and the reason is because he's only mentioned about nine times. And he's mentioned four of those times in lists of the 12 apostles. And then the other times that he's mentioned, it's not really in a significant way. In fact, most of the times that he's mentioned, the remainder of the times that he's mentioned, he's always mentioned, he's always identified sort of like there's Peter, oh, and his brother Andrew. As though Andrew's claim to fame, his his sort of mark to like, you know, notoriety is just the fact that he's related to Peter. And so it's kind of like Andrew all the way through is getting the short end of the stick. Now, as I told you, Andrew and Peter were brothers. They're originally from a small fishing community north of Galilee, a fishing town called Bethsaida. At one point in time, they inherited their father's fishing business. They decided to relocate their fishing business from the small town of Bethsaida to the larger fishing community of Capernaum. That's where Peter meets his wife. He falls in love. He meets his wife. They get married. They go into business with these two other guys. John and James who are also brothers the four of them are best friends they work together they labor together they have moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum together and in fact at one point in time the four of them apparently made the decision maybe on a weekend or something to put the fishing business on hold and they're going to have a men's retreat and so the four of them they say we're going to go on a men's retreat we're going to just Park the boats for a weekend, and we're going to go on down to the wilderness where there's this guy preaching. His name's John the Baptist. And we're going to go on a little bit of a spiritual retreat, and we're going to go hear John preach. And so they did. They travel the wilderness, they hear John preach, they're awed by the preaching of this Baptist, they, they like what they hear, they're convicted in their hearts, they realize that they need to make a straight path for the Lord. They become followers of this Baptist guy. Now they couldn't have followed him all the time because there's bills to pay, there's life to be lived, and they've got a fishing business they've got to get back and forth to. So they're sort of making these treks back and forth from the wilderness back to Capernaum where their boats are, and as they're doing this, On one particular occasion, they're hanging out with John. And John tells him, you know that guy I've been preaching about? You know that Messiah I've been telling you is going to come? That's him. And he points at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the two disciples that he mentions this to, one of them happens to be Andrew. Andrew goes and he stays the night with Jesus. He hears Jesus' teaching. He he gets to know Christ personally. And what's the first thing that he does? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 35 to 42, just briefly. In verse 35, it says, The next day John is standing with two of his disciples, and he looked as Jesus walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned, and he saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? In other words, what do you, what do you want? What, what are you here for? What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, you know, to the 21st century ears, that sounds kind of weird. You know, you're walking along and, you, you know, just making your way down the sidewalk and there's these guys following you and you're like, okay, what's the deal? What do you guys want? Where do you live, man? That's a little unusual, Right? But uh, these uh, these guys live in a different culture than us, and so uh, it's not uncommon for disciples to search out to find a rabbi, a teacher. And the way that you disciple, the way you become a disciple is you commit yourself to this rabbi. You follow him. You will stay with him. You will live with him. You will learn from him. You will learn to live life the way that the rabbi lives life. And so it's kind of a giveaway when they say rabbi, it's very clear what they're, they're getting at. Where are you staying? They're making it clear from the outset, based upon the testimony of John the Baptist, saying this is the Messiah, this is Lamb of God. They go to Jesus, they say, rabbi, we're here, we're your guys. That's basically what they're saying. So Jesus shows them where he's staying. The text goes on. They came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one, of those, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. You'll notice it says, Peter's brother. In other words, John's writing the gospel, and he writes it. Yeah, and one of the guys that, heard the, that was there for this That was Andrew. And the author anticipates that you're not going to know who Andrew is. So he lets you know. Ah, That's Peter's brother. It's as though every time we encounter this guy over and over and over again, he's going to be identified as the quiet one, the guy that's sort of always hanging around wherever Peter's at. You know, you've seen it. Oh, right, yes, of course, Andrew, right, I forgot. So Andrew is over and over and over again identified as the guy that's always with Peter, his brother. Look what it says. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Peter's brother. Verse 41. What does he do? He finds Peter. The first thing Andrew does as a result of being a follower of Christ. He goes and he gets his more outspoken brother. And he's probably lived his whole life in this in his brother's shadow. I have brothers. I don't know if you have a brother. I do. I have an identical twin brother. You talk about sibling rivalry. I can tell you what that's like. We're not just competing to be the best at soccer or football. We're competing to be the best looking. We're twins. Like, we have the same face, you know. My, uh, my wife, my, my twin brother asked Shanti out on a date first before me, and she said no to him, and I thought that it was because she thought he was ugly, or not good-looking, or not handsome, which is why I waited years to ask Shanti out, because it's like, well, how do you overcome that, you know, like, and it's interesting, because my wife will tell you to this day, I'm I'm the cuter of the two, (laughs) but I, I don't see how she can really mean that, but she says it, so, you know, who knows, maybe I am, but these guys are siblings they they are at odds with each other. It's you know sibling rivalry these are brothers and peter's the one who's quick spoken he's witty he's got an answer for everything andrew not so fast on the draw not so quick with his words not so clever with his speech and yet he finds jesus before peter does now he comes to jesus he says i'm going to be your disciple." He's there when John the Baptist says, that's the Messiah. He's got his foot in the door first. And you just have to know the temptation runs through his mind. I can follow this guy and just not tell Peter. And for once, I'll be the guy that got in on the ground floor. I'll be the guy that was here from the beginning. I'll let Peter figure it out on his own you know that thought had to have crossed his mind. And yet the scripture says the first thing he does is he goes and he finds Peter. Like I said, he's not well-spoken. He doesn't have any grand sermon that he preaches in the book of Acts. He says almost nothing. But he finds Peter. Peter. And Peter does a whole lot of talking. And I need you to understand this. If it weren't for Andrew, there would be no Peter. We all know Peter. Peter has preached. Peter has talked. We've learned from his mistakes. We've learned from his successes. But we would have learned nothing if there hadn't been an Andrew that went and got Peter. We would have grasped nothing, we would have learned nothing, and we would have benefited not at all from anything to do with Peter if there hadn't been a brother named Andrew who always was in the shadows, who never got to step out into the limelight, and yet did not consider Christ something that he was going to hoard and keep to himself and live in isolation, but made the decision rather, Jesus should be shared with the world, and even though I'm always under this guy's thumb, he needs Jesus too. And he goes and he gets his brother and he brings his brother and of course Peter becomes the leader of the group. You uh, know who Billy Graham is. I have no doubt of this. You've heard of him. He's preached, thousands, he's preached dozens of crusades, maybe hundreds of crusades. I don't have the exact number off the top of my head. Thousands, tens of thousands of people have given their life to Christ as a result of Billy Graham's ministry. Back in November, I read a biography on Billy Graham. And in chapter 2, Somewhere about three or four pages in, it documents the man that helped lead Billy Graham to Christ. As I was preparing my message this week, the thought struck me, oh yeah, who was it that led Billy Graham to Christ? And I could not for the life of me remember his name, even though I just read about him three, four months ago in a book. Do any of you know who led Billy Graham to Christ? No, none of us do. And yet, aren't we glad Billy came to faith? Aren't we glad somebody said, hey, let me tell you about Jesus, and persuaded Billy Graham to come to faith in Christ? If not for that no-name, who I've actually read about, and yet even now I can't even recall his name, if not for the no-name, thousands of people would never have come to faith in Christ. D.L. Moody, one of the most prominent evangelists of the 20th century, a predecessor to Billy Graham, if you will. There was a guy that brought him to faith, and his name was Edward Kimball. And D.L. Moody stood up and he preached to the masses. He preached to thousands of people on this this side of the Atlantic as well as over in Europe. And lots of people came to faith as a result of D.L. Moody's preaching. And Kimball was the man that led D.L. Moody to Christ. Moody was attending Kimball's church. He was involved in the Sunday school. He worked at that time in a shoe shop in Chicago repairing shoes and, and making shoes. And Kimball wrote about when he led Moody to Christ. He just wrote a a little blurb about it. He said, I decided I was going to go speak to Moody about Christ. I was going to speak to him about his soul. So I started down to Holton's shoe store where D.L. was working. And when I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to to go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. When I got there, maybe the other clerks in the store might ask who I was. And when they learned about what I was there for, they might taunt Moody and ask if I was trying to make Moody a good little boy. So while I was pondering over all of this, I passed the store without even noticing it. I realized I'd missed my mark. As I struggled about what to do in this moment, I determined just to make a dash for it to have it over at once he turned around and he went back into Holt's shoe store and he said I'd like to speak to your shoe boy Mr. Moody and as he was trying on a pair of shoes there in the store he said Moody I know it's business hours and this is personal but would you give your life to Jesus and he did do you know anything else about Edward Kimball I bet, bet you most of you in this room never even heard of the man until I Mention him to you today. And yet, D.L. Moody went on, and his ministry, like I said, it spanned both sides of the Atlantic. Tens of thousands testified that they came to Christ as a result. Among them were people like C.T. Studd, pioneer missionary Wilbur Chapman. He was a well-known evangelist as well. Most significantly, Moody founded the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. You all have met Rachel Brandon and Rachel Blessman. Where are they going to school? They're going to school at the Moody Bible Institute. They're going to be trained to serve in ministry at the school that Moody founded. But guess what? There's no school and there's no training if there's no Kimball. It takes one guy who labors in the shadows who says, I'm just going to go and get this guy and bring this person to faith. That's Andrew with his brother. There's no Peter if there's no Andrew. Next passage, I want you to turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be specifically looking at verses... 1 to 14. Of course, you're all familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. It says in John chapter 6, after this Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Jesus already knows what he's going to do. The very next verse says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. In other words, Philip, we got a crowd here. They need to eat. How are we going to feed them? It's nearly an impossible task. 5,000, the scriptures record, 5,000 men. They're probably traveling with their wives and probably a number of children. We don't really know the exact number of the crowd. It could have been upwards of 10, 12, 13,000 people. The scripture says it's 5,000 men. It's an enormous mob. They're coming after Jesus. And he says, we need to feed these guys. Philip, where are we going to get bread? And Philip's answer is, it's impossible. His statement is, if you look In verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. In other words, it doesn't matter how much money we have, we can't possibly buy enough bread just for them to have a morsel. Now, Jesus already knows what he's going to do. So the question that he's directing towards Philip is, what are we going to do? And it says specifically he's asking this to test him. Now, guess who's about to show up? Andrew. He has found a boy that has a couple of loaves and some fish. Jesus says, "Philip, what are we going to do?" Philip says, "It's impossible." It's impossible. Now these guys, they're riding high. They got this massive crowd of people following them. 5, 10,000 people. They're looking at all of this with wide eyes and wonder. Wow, we're really doing this. We're really impacting the entire nation of Israel. They're seeing the big picture. Andrew is noticing a young boy. Don't miss that. In this room, we say, I want to do great things for God. I want to make a difference. I want to go out and I want to preach to the masses. What about the old lady that needs help moving her refrigerator? What about the youth group that is always in need of volunteers and people to serve? What about the children's ministry? And I know all of those things are often not glamorous, and you are not thanked for the labor that you do. And yet, when the masses come, It's a little boy that has just what Jesus needs to save the day. It's a child. Somebody that would be in our children's ministry. And while all of the others are looking at the grand gathering, it's Andrew who can spot the little kid in the crowd. And notice, he's got... A couple of fish, a couple pieces of bread. Philip, what are we going to do? I don't know. Looks impossible. You think a couple of fish and some bread is going to feed this crowd? No. Andrew grabs the boy. He brings him to Jesus. And I want you to notice what he says. One of his disciples, this is verse 8, Andrew, again, in case you didn't know, Simon Peter's brother. He said to him, verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. In other words, he's got some food, Jesus. He wouldn't have brought the boy to Christ if he didn't think that Christ could do something with it. But at the same time, he doesn't want to presume. He's not trying to force Jesus to take a course of action that maybe Jesus doesn't necessarily want to take. Jesus asked the question, how are we going to feed these people? Let's not kid ourselves. This man's been healing people and performing miracles for years now. He clearly has the desire and the intention to feed them. Philip, where are we going to get some bread? Philip, it's impossible. Andrew, this kid's got some food. But it's just a little. But this kid's got some food. In other words, Jesus, here's a guy... He's got some food, little boy. Just a little, but I know you can do miracles. His faith was expectant. And of course, the scriptures make it perfectly clear. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Last passage of scripture that I would like for you to look at. This comes from John chapter 12. Flip with me to John chapter 12 verses 20 to 26. Andrew gets Peter, brings Peter to Christ. Andrew gets a little boy, brings a little boy to Christ. We've now run the course three years, full-time ministry. The moment is approaching which Jesus Christ will now be crucified and give his life For the world. They're in Jerusalem at the Passover. And it says in verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, Gentiles. Of course, we're familiar that there's a little bit of prejudice. We could call it racism amongst the Jewish people. They don't like to hang out with Greeks. They don't like to hang out with Gentiles. They think that they're the elite, the chosen ones. And and so they don't associate but these Greeks want to see Jesus. It makes a statement in verse 21, these came to Philip. Now remember, Jesus asked Philip, hey, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip's like, it's impossible. Well, he learned his lesson. It's not impossible. You just got to let Jesus work some miracles. So these Greeks show up. Now, ordinarily, you're not touching this with a 10-foot pole. I'm not going to have anything to do with these Greeks. The Greeks come, they say, hey, we want to see Jesus. Look at what Philip does. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew. You notice it doesn't say this time, Simon Peter's brother. In other words, the shy, quiet guy who never has a front and center role, who lives his life trusting in Jesus, who lives his life by bringing people to Jesus, now at this point in time, when there's some kind of an odd situation going on, when there's something out of the norm taking place, now it's like, I'm not sure what to do with this. I'm going to ask the quiet guy. I'm going to go seek out the guy who never forces himself upon the situation. I'm going to go see what his opinion is about this whole thing. Now, Andrew, we got some guys here, they're Greeks, they want to see Jesus. What should we do? What would you do? Look at what Andrew does. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Because Andrew, he'll take anybody to Christ. And look at what Jesus' response to them. They tell Jesus, hey, there's some guys here, they're Greeks, they want to see you. And this is the moment This is the moment that Christ has been waiting for. This is the moment in which the world, from all the nations, is beginning to desire this Messiah. His own people have rejected him. But the Gentiles are coming. And when this moment takes place, Jesus knows it's time. It's time. The moment has come, he's going to be crucified. Andrew comes to him, he says, Jesus, there's some Greeks here. And look at what Jesus says to Andrew. If you're Andrew, and for that matter, if you're any of the other disciples, any of the other apostles listening to this, you better believe Jesus is saying something to Andrew that they're all taking note of. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talked to them about it. He's told them it's coming. He has said, there's a moment in which I'm going to be crucified. They're going to kill me. Peter has said, no way, never going to happen. Stop talking crazy talk. Andrew comes to him and he says, the Greeks are here. And he says to Andrew, it's time. Truly, truly, I say to you, In case you're wondering, the you there is in the singular. He's speaking to Andrew. All the other disciples are listening, but he's got a word for Andrew. They're listening in, but he wants Andrew to hear something. And some of you are here, and perhaps you're an Andrew. Perhaps you're not the guy that likes to be in the limelight hear what Jesus says to Andrew. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. You're quiet. You're an introvert. You don't like to get out in the front and center on the stage. You don't like to make a spectacle of yourself. You prefer to stay in the shadows. And You come to Jesus and you're like, Jesus, there's some guys here that want to see you. And his statement is, It's time. And then he says, if you don't die, you'll stay alone. Now, Andrew prefers to be alone. He prefers the quiet. And Christ's statement to him is, If you don't die, you're going to stay alone. In other words, it's not good to stay alone. You need to die. But what does that really mean? He explains. If it dies, it bears much fruit. So the root to fruit is to die. If you're alone, you're not producing fruit. You have to die to produce fruit. If you don't die, you'll stay alone. So, aloneness is bad. Isolation is bad. Being by yourself is bad. You want to produce fruit. Fruit is the antithesis of aloneness. In order to produce the fruit, your way of life, the way you look at life, has to come to an end. You die, and you produce fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, look at this last phrase. The Father will honor him. I lost my train of thought. Isolation is not what God has called us to. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, God looking at Adam says, it is not good that man should be alone. This is God's judgment. He created us to live in relationship with others. It's hard for us to understand because of the broken world in which we live, but the truth is that we were made for relationships. We were made to live in community. The whole human race is built upon the notion of family. It's built upon the idea of togetherness. And yet, as a result of sin, we don't like that as much as we sometimes prefer to be by ourselves. Now, Andrew is an introvert, just like you and me, just like some of us in this room. He doesn't prefer to be front and center. And yet, he's following Jesus, and he's bringing people to Jesus. And when he brings these Greeks to Jesus, Jesus says to him, Andrew, if you don't die, you're going to stay alone. Death is the means to producing fruit. And so what Jesus is saying to any of us who are like Andrew, this desire for isolation, this desire to be in the shadows if we insist upon that, if we insist on being by ourselves, if we don't try to stretch ourselves and grow in relationships with other people, if we don't try to bring people to Jesus, which Andrew is already doing, if we do not make it our mission in life to serve God by finding our joy in the joy of others coming to know God, if we don't produce that kind of fruit, we're going to die. I mean, that's at the heart of what he is saying here. Aloneness Isolation is the enemy. Being alone is not what Christ wants. He wants you in community. And to do that, you have to die to yourself. Now, it's really easy for me by myself in my Lazy Boy recliner with my remote control in my hand and my Dallas Cowboys playing on the TV to think that the world is wonderful. I like it. have my Twinkies, have my coffee, have my cowboys, have my lazy boy. And when people come into that world, it's annoying. <laughs> I'm being honest. You're watching it. Somebody comes in, hey, Josh, how's it going? Mm, turning the volume up. I Hope you're picking up on these signals I'm sending here, you know. Now, I have the opportunity of watching the Cowboys lose... Or having a relationship with someone, relating to someone, investing in them, potentially learning from them, potentially helping them grow deeper in their walk with Christ, potentially them helping me grow deeper in my walk with Christ. The Cowboys are going to lose anyway. (laughs) You don't have to laugh that loud, Krista. I mean, come on, man. (laughs) She's a Broncos fan, in case you didn't know. The truth is, there is more joy in the people in that room than any other pursuit that I could have apart from them. And that's what I need you to hear, even in our everyday activities. Whether we go to work, whether we go to the grocery store, whether we are watching the Cowboys lose. We're meant to be together. And some of us struggle with introversion. And some of us say, you know, I could never possibly be a great leader in the church. I could never possibly do great things for God because I'm a shy person, I'm quiet, I don't like to be on the front and center stage. If that's your mentality, then you're going to die. Alone. I know it's uncomfortable. I know that some of us don't like to get out of our comfort zones. I know that we don't like to go and talk to people about Jesus. I know this. I'm one of those people. I'm telling you, because Jesus is telling you, the fruit is wonderful. To step out of your comfort zone, to say no to the Dallas Cowboys or to whatever it is you'd rather be doing and to say yes to the person across the street from you or to the family member that has come to visit unexpectedly or to the coworker that has stepped into your office that needs to borrow some staples from you. It doesn't matter what you're doing and it doesn't really matter whether or not they're interrupting you. That's not the important thing. God is in control of all things and those people have been brought into your life And will you invest in them? It's not just about the tasks that you have to do. And tasks are important. I'm a task-oriented guy. It's about the people that are on the journey with you. If you step away from your task, whatever it might be, and pour yourself into someone and bring that person to Christ, that will be very hard for you if you're an introvert like me. And yet, that person that you're pouring yourself into, that person could very well be the next Peter, the next Billy Graham, the next Moody. We read about Kimball, and he's afraid. I I don't know if I should do this. Should I go in? It's business hours. Eh, It's a thousand and one reasons not to go. And then he just decides, I'm just going to do it. tens of thousands of people have come to faith as a result of one man saying, I'm just going to do it. And so you're here today, and I know that some of you are like, I could never tell anyone about Jesus. Just do it. Just invest. Just pour your life into them. And you have no idea what they're going to become. And you have no idea what it will look like for that person if you can invest in them and pour your life into them what they will look like five, ten years from now. Be like Andrew. Even if you're not talented, you can still bring one person to Christ. Between Brenham and College Station, there's this town called Independence, Texas. Uh, A little bit out of the way off this dirt path is this place called Washington on the Brazos. It's where the Texans won their independence from Mexico where Santa Anna signed the uh, Peace Accord with Sam Houston. I was working in Brenham. Shanti was going to school in College Station. I was driving back and forth visiting her on the weekends. And along Highway 5, as I said, halfway between Brenham and College Station, there's this little town called Independence. And just up the road from Independence is this little tiny shop on the side of the road called Roses, the Rose Antique Emporium. It's a rose garden. It's got hundreds, thousands of beautiful, amazing roses. People don't go there for the roses. On the fields... All around this shop are literally millions of bluebonnets. That's the Texas State flower, beautiful flower. And, and in the springtime, right around this time of the year when the bluebonnets start to pop up and start to come out, people flock because it's literally blue as far as the eye can see all the way up these hills and, and everybody likes to put their kids down on these bluebonnets and take pictures of them in, in, in these fields of flowers and they're absolutely gorgeous. And so Shanti and I like to poke around, look at old things, antiques and whatnot. So we, we went to the Rose Antique Emporium, and we looked around the little antique shop there, and we were just kind of wandering around, looking at the flowers, and we wandered out into the fields, and we just went up for a hike up this one, this one uh, hill. And on the back side of the hill, we came down, there's a little brook. Well, it's interesting, because on the back side of the hill, there are no blue bonnets. not a blue bonnet to be seen anywhere. We came down to the brook, and we saw one little blue bonnet on the edge of the water. I tell you, it was beautiful. It was amazing. It's probably one of the prettiest blue bonnets, if not the prettiest blue bonnet I had ever seen, all by itself, there on the water. And As Shanti and I were standing there, I was holding her hand, and I was looking at this blue bonnet, and I thought to myself, that's a pity. little blue bonnet all out here, all by itself in the middle of nowhere where no one's ever going to see it. And I thought to myself, God, why, why did you put this blue bonnet out here in the middle of nowhere? Where no one can see it. And God's response to me was, I see it. He sees you right where you are. you might feel alone, and you might feel like you can't do big things for God, but you can. You're beautiful to Him, and you can bloom brightly, even if you don't like to be in the crowd where every other blue bonnet is. He sees you right where you are, and He can use you right where you are. I went back the next year, and there were two bonnets. We went back last summer, had the opportunity to visit, and I crossed that hill and I looked to see what had become of my little blue bonnet. There's just as many blue bonnets on the back side of that hill now as there were on the front side. Listen to me. Did that one little blue bonnet populate that whole hill? No. But he made a start of it that's where you're at some of you are here today it's time you made a start of it be like andrew let's pray